Hey everyone, my name is Marcus, and I want to welcome you to our first episode of Hunger, the podcast. This is season one, titled Sacred Scars, Life After Religious Trauma. We're going to be talking about religious trauma and all the things related to religious trauma. So if you are someone who carries religious trauma, you've endured spiritual abuse, and you've got anxieties and fears and just, you know, a lot of pain surrounding things like church, God, etc. I'm here to explore that with you. But the cool thing is not alone here with my partner, Candice, who I'm going to welcome and introduce in a moment. And for those of you who don't know me, maybe you haven't heard any of my content before. I am a pastor and also a religious trauma coach. And that's a really big passion of mine because I am a survivor of religious trauma. And uh, Candice is as well. So we'll get to hear those stories uh, as we go through this season. We're going to be doing quite a number of episodes on this. And our hope is that you guys feel really seen and that you feel heard and that this is something that really enables you to experience healing in your life and also in your relationship with God. So anyways, without any more chitter chatter from me, I just want to welcome Candice along. Candice, say hello and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Just the fun stuff. We can get to the serious stuff later. You know, like just the fun stuff. Who is Candice? What is the legend of Candice? Hi, everyone. My name is Candice. I'm so excited to be here journeying with you all and journeying with you, Marcus, on this podcast. So yeah, thank you for inviting me into this space. And yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. It's awesome. And you know, like the thing is, a lot of people won't actually know this, but what we're about to do is having these conversations is literally just recording things we talk about all the time. Hey, like yeah. <laughs> um, we actually sat down one day and we were like, these conversations are so fun. What if we recorded these? You know, like I'm mm -hmm. sure a lot of people would really benefit from hearing our stories, our scars, and, and also just our conversations. So, so yeah, so, so Candice, Obviously, you know, coming on this podcast, there is the professional side of you as a psychotherapist and as someone who's passionate about trauma, et cetera. Is there, tell us something about Candice that is, you know, just something that you really enjoy. Maybe like, a, what's your favorite TV show? Let's do that, right? Oh. Like, that's always a great place to, to go. Like, what's the Candice's sure. favorite television show? Uh, well, I love anything that is edge of your seat apocalyptic, time travel, end of the world. Um, yeah, anything to yeah. do with those types of themes. So that always makes me excited. And I also love a good romance. I mean, you know, it's really, it's nice to have you did something romantic. You did introduce me to the notebook many years ago. <laughs> oh yeah, that was years ago. <laughs> but yeah, there's been plenty more since then that I really like. So. I'm sure there's plenty of guys who were introduced to the notebook by by their partner so yes and <laughs> we weren't it. out there like actively looking to watch it but you know it was a good movie i enjoyed it, it was a little sad at the end but you know sad in a good yes. way but, yeah. but there is there is one one particular show that i know for sure you love and i just mm -hmm. want to like trigger your memory there it's mm -hmm. it's taking forever to get to the final season but you know you keep asking when is it coming check mm -hmm. google it yeah i don't think you need to kind of trigger my memory i already know what it is <laughs> It's Outlander. Outlander, yes. Yes, yes, yes. No, I love Outlander. Hmm? And the Scottish history, which is 
really amazing. Not sure if all of it's accurate, but it's still fun to watch anyway. So yeah. Look, speaking of Scottish history, you have what is what is known as a complex identity. So a, a, a beautifully complex history. Yes. You know, there's Scottish in there and there's Irish and mm-hmm. there is Native American. And obviously you're Australian. You have mm-hmm. English as well. And I can relate to that a little bit because like I'm Puerto Rican and that's like we all come from one island, but it's complex mm-hmm. history. Right. So like I got Spaniard, Taino, which is the mm-hmm. native sort of tribes that live there and also African and there's Arabic influence in there as well. Now, I don't I'm not sure if all of those are part of my heritage i i all four of those but i know at least three of them are yeah so yeah that actually features in a lot of conversations that we have because a lot of the conversations that we have are around sort of going back to how our ancestors viewed reality and Mm -hmm. decolonizing some of the western assumptions that we bring to god and that we bring to faith and Mm -hmm. and there's actually a lot of healing just in that journey alone because you get to peel back step away from the sort of mentality or the sort of cultural, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like that, that movement that was, was thinking of God, but was also building an empire. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and just step away from that and go back to like, Hey, you know, like how did our ancestors sort of think of these things? People who weren't necessarily looking at constructing giant empires and using God as like the way in which they were going to justify what they were doing. So you just find a lot of beauty in that. And I know I just jumped like way ahead into like maybe like episode three or four here, but you mentioned the Scottish thing with Outlander. And I was like, oh yeah, this is something that features a lot in our conversations, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and there's not saying that everything in, you know, at least for me, like in my ancestry, like that everything that my ancestors believed is necessarily healthy in, in, in the sort of Thing that we're going to be discussing, you know, the sort of emotional health and psychological health, et cetera. But, but there's a lot of beauty there that has been lost over the years. So Absolutely. now there's one show you forgot to mention. You forgot mm-hmm. to mention Stranger Things. Yes. Yes. That's not a romance. It's not. But it's, it's super fun and definitely edge of your seat. Yeah. I, I just need to know what happens next. I feel like by yeah. the time the final season releases, we're going to be like 60. And then I know. the actors are going to be like 40. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, come on, let's move yeah. on now, you know, but it's yeah. just so it's not good. We're ready. It's Although fine. I'm not going to lie. Like the last season was a little bit creepy, creepier than I like. Yeah. But it does, it does have a pretty phenomenal storyline. Hopefully the next season yeah. isn't quite as creepy. So Yeah, it was. I felt a bit triggered. <laughs> I was sitting there a few times like, I don't know yeah. if I should be watching this. But Yeah, yeah. If, um, this, if this wasn't so clearly CGI, I would probably be like, very uncomfortable right now but it was like kind of cartoonish at the same time so yeah <laughs> yeah man yeah all it's, right it's entertaining. Well, it is it is yeah and it, like you know there's so much about the show that's really good and you know i'm sure if this was you know like a uh, a rating tv shows episode we could probably go on and on just about that yeah. but i'm sure i'm sure people listening are like all right guys can we can we move on to this religious yeah. drama thing and yeah, we're let's, gonna get there, guys. Let's we move on. on yeah <laughs> <laughs> but hey again i just want to welcome everyone who's who's listening who's tuning in and what we're going to be doing here throughout this season is we're going to have these conversations and our hope again is that you can experience just a sense of being seen and and just that you can experience just a sense that your story is honored in through our stories and also the insights that we'll share along the way but i do want to just clarify a few things so number one 
a, a podcast series like this, as, as amazing as I'm sure it's going to be for you guys, it cannot replace proper therapy, right? So I just want to encourage you guys, like if, if you're in a place where you feel, really feel like you need to reach out and you really feel like, hey, I, I need to, yeah, I just, I need to talk to someone, then please, please, please reach out to a counselor or a therapist in your mm -hmm. local area. Now, Candice is a qualified psychotherapist. She does do sessions. She does do online sessions. But as far as I'm aware, Candice, at the moment, you're only able to do sessions in the UK and Australia. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, so if you're in the okay. US, then, then well, at least at this stage, we'll update you guys when and if that changes. But at least at this stage, anyone who's in the UK and Australia can book you, but mm -hmm. the US, not yet. That's just, you know, not going to bore you guys with all the insurance details. That's just kind of like the way the cookie crumbles at the moment. But but if, if you are in the UK and Australia and you want to reach out to Candice, then what's your, your website is? Soulighttherapy.com.au. Soulighttherapy. And just one L. Yeah. So S-O-U-L and then I-G-H-T. So one yeah. L, two T's. And it's .com.au. And, and we will share that. We'll share that in our, in our, like, you know, online and stuff in our, in our links and whatnot. But if someone wanted to just go on, on that website and book a session with you, if you're in the UK or Australia, that's, you know, you can, you can definitely do that. And also if, if someone wanted to just, sorry, if you're feeling like, as you're listening to this, if you're feeling like, Hey, you know, this stuff has really impacted me pretty bad. And you kind of feel that sense of distress, please make sure you are reaching out to just, you have a mental health care plan, you know, cause those things are important, you know, like we're talking about some heavy things and sometimes people carry some deep wounds around these things. So we want this yeah. to be a healing space for you, but also recognize that as we talk about some of these things, some of them might be triggering, right? Some of them might be kind of heavy to listen to, maybe heavy to process. And we just mm -hmm. want to make sure that everyone is like, you know, just be mindful have to take the proper steps, have a mental health care plan. If you need to reach out to someone, reach out to someone, whether it's Lifeline or anything of that nature. I know it's different depending on what country you're in, but we really want you guys to be well and to be safe and, and to enjoy this series and everything that we're going to be discussing, but also just be mindful of taking care of yourself. And I think that's, that's really important. And I think it's important to mention this. I'll tell you why, Candice, because in a lot of high control religions, therapy is discouraged. You know, it's like, oh, don't go there. Don't talk to those people. They're going to, you know, they're going to lead you astray with their psycho babble or, <laughs> yep. or, or there's just this mentality of if you have enough faith, you won't have mm -hmm. anxiety, you won't have depression or just pray, you know, just talk to God. He's your counselor. Mm -hmm. Like just talk to him and everything will be fine. And so right on the, the get go, I just want to normalize that. Mm -hmm. It's okay to reach out to a professional therapist and get help. It's absolutely. Yeah. 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 Cool, man. I'm really glad that you brought that up because yeah, that's very important. And yeah, I just want to encourage everyone again, just to have some sort of a safety plan and get some phone numbers sorted. If you feel very vulnerable to this topic and just have something readily available that you can turn to if you feel distressed or overwhelmed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when the episode's over, go do something fun, you know, enjoy, yeah. enjoy your day a little bit, you know, cuddle your dog, go for a walk, you know, go to the mm -hmm. beach, all those good things. So what yeah. we want to talk about today is the seven signs that you might be living with religious trauma. So we're going to start off pretty light, you know, just looking at those seven signs, uh, seven mm -hmm. typical signs that people who have religious trauma usually carry. But our season overall is titled Sacred Scars, Life After Religious Trauma. 
And we're going to be doing roughly 10 episodes, just covering different aspects of this, having different conversations around spiritual trauma, spiritual gaslighting, a lot of common religious phrases in church that tend to, you know, get tossed around that are actually harmful. They tend to get abused quite easily. We'll talk about trauma in spiritual communities as well. So even if like you're someone who maybe wasn't raised in church, but you've been part of spiritual communities, whether it's new age or whatever, you know, there's different spiritual communities. We'll talk about that, you know, just, yeah. Like, so lots of different sort of topics and we'll, del we'll, we'll delve into some specific like theological doctrinal ideas that are really um, harmful. And it will look at what healing looks like and what that journey looks like and what life after religious trauma looks like. But this, mm -hmm. this podcast series is honestly, you guys, I'm hoping it's the beginning of something way, way, way bigger. And so if this is really impacting your life and it's really touching your life, then please, 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 we're not available on Spotify and Apple podcasts yet because we have to get a few episodes going um, posted and then we can sort of put the RSS code in there. But once it is, please like and subscribe to those to those links because it really helps us know, hey, people are really engaging with this. They're, this is really you know meaningful for them. And then we can just keep creating content on that. So anyways, without all, any further boring stuff, I want to ask you a question. Go so ahead. my question is, you know, looking at these seven signs that you might be living with religious trauma. And I think most people get what religious means, although I'm happy to expand on that a little bit, but I think most people get what that means. Not sure everyone is necessarily clear on what we're talking about when we talk about trauma. So can you give us like a brief breakdown? What are we talking about when we talk about trauma? A brief breakdown. That is a big challenge. <laughs> There's a range of traumas. So each trauma looks different and has a different impact. So just a quick breakdown of some of the types of traumas. You can have an acute single incident trauma. You can have a chronic PTSD. You can have relational trauma or complex PTSD. Um, and then there's others such as attachment, developmental trauma, cultural historical, religious, and so on. So there's many types of traumas and they all have, they all look different and they impact people differently. Not everybody has the same experience with trauma. Um, you could go through the same trauma and your experience will be completely different to the other person. So when you look at spiritual abuse and religious trauma, spiritual abuse is the series of experiences or a particular event that has happened to somebody and the religious trauma is the ongoing effect of that spiritual abuse mm -hmm. so that's the difference which i think is very important to mention here that religious trauma is the ongoing effect mm -hmm. of a spiritual abuse so i don't know if that answers your question briefly <laughs> No, it's actually, yes. really, it's actually really, really helpful because it allows us to at least sit back for a moment and recognize we're dealing with something really, really big here. And, yeah. and it's okay, particularly for those who feel like, hey, I think I relate to this religious trauma thing. I think it's okay to allow yourself the space and the pace to go at this gently because yes. it's not something that can be just you're not going to snap your fingers or you're not going to listen to a podcast and it's resolved, yeah. right? And even in therapy, it can take quite some time, you know, to just mm -hmm. process a lot of these things. 
and be able to to finally finally heal from a lot of these things even with what you just said there's different type of things that can cause trauma i know from my experience there's different types of religious trauma as well and we've actually got a quiz going on right now you guys if if you go to our website hungerpodcast.com that's the website hungerpodcast.com you will as soon as you scroll down you'll see you know quiz for the four types of religious trauma and those four types of religious trauma are theological which is like the things that you were taught about god so fear of god judgment hell doctrines you know those perfectionism that type of stuff then there's developmental religious trauma which is like the impact that you had in a spiritual community that robbed you of your childhood and you have to grieve that loss right or or you were constantly bombarded with shame-based beliefs and and that usually has to do with natural human development right so like as a person develops naturally through the stages of you know their human development in high control religious communities a lot of those developments are shamed you know so mm -hmm. For example, when you're a teenager, you know, part of being a teenager is you ask lots of questions and you're, you're a little bit skeptical and you're trying to determine what your identity is. And that's developmental, that's normal. And in high control religious communities and even families, that sort of questioning is, is, is shamed. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you're being rebellious and you're being disobedient and you're a bad person and you shouldn't even ask these questions. You should just trust in God. Right. And so that's an example of like your development, natural development as a person has been repressed or shamed. And that's sort of the developmental type of religious trauma. Then there's sociological, which is like the community that you exist within, where they silence you, they teach you to submit. And that's particularly impacts women more than men, because there's that headship theology within a lot of high control religions, where it's like men are, are the dominant and women have to just submit. And uh, there's this toxic obedience where if there's a, a leader in the community, you have to do everything they say, where if there's a person who's considered a prophet, you have to do everything they say without question, you know, you got to shut off your brain type of thing. And it's just like the sociological, like this whole community of people that are just like mm -hmm. coming down on you, not necessarily on purpose, it's just part of the social convention, right? And so when you start asking questions and when you start detaching yourself from that, then there's a lot of judgment and there's mm -hmm. a lot of accusation and, and people abandon you as well. And so mm -hmm. that affects your esteem, your self-esteem and in, in a really negative way. And then there's apocalyptic religious trauma, which is like, you know, being raised in a church where people are just constantly focused on conspiracy theories and the, you know, what the devil's up to and the big bad wolf. And it just gets overwhelming. And so you kind of are raised with this fear of the future, this insecurity, this anxiety, this indecisiveness because the world's going to end and it's going to be so bad. Right. And so these are just for, you know, like, again, just to, <laughs> just to add a little bit to what you were saying, like we are dealing with what I would call a sacred topic, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in, in sacred, it's like, there's a lot of layers to this that need to be held with honor and walked with gently, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if you would add anything to that, but that would be sort of um, my way of just looking just at the religious trauma. And that's not even all the different types of trauma. It's just like religious, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then alongside that, you have all of the effects of those trauma experiences. So you have people that are now feeling anxious, depressed, you know, having nightmares, flashbacks, feeling mm. shame, worthlessness, panic attacks. You see a lot of hypervigilance. I don't know if you've experienced a lot of that in working 
with people in the church. You know, there's a lot of hypervigilance. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah. There's this, there's this, at least in my context, right? And people will be listening to this from different denominational contexts. So at least in, in my context, where there was a lot of fundamentalism in my particular denominational context and also like my years as a pastor. I'm not an active, I'm not an employed pastor anymore. When I was, I worked in a lot of fundamentalist churches. And there is this constant never-ending cycle of fear that I'm going to be deceived. And there's this mm -hmm. hyper-awareness. And anytime anyone says anything that's remotely different to the very narrow definitions that you have in your mind, you automatically assume this person's of the devil, this person's going to deceive me, I shouldn't listen to this person, I shouldn't read those books. And then you do that to your kids mm -hmm. if you're a parent. And yeah, yeah. so 100%, like a hyper-awareness, it's just over the top. Where you just can't light, you can't lighten up, you can't enjoy anything, you know. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you also have identity confusion. When I have talked to a lot of people in church who are navigating trauma, religious trauma, they haven't had autonomy yeah. in their spiritual experience and they don't know who they are. And so they need somebody to think for them and to choose for them, to decide for them. Everything has to be done for them. And then if they go through this journey of healing their trauma, they are confused because they've built their whole worldview, their whole sense of meaning around this belief system. And so it can be very confusing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lack of meaning is another one that's very common. Um, and even things like sexual dysfunction, eating disorders, OCD, mm -hmm. substance abuse, they're very common ongoing effects of religious trauma. Absolutely. And I was going to say something based on one of the points you made a little bit earlier, that there's also a sense of trauma when a person decides I can no longer belong to this community or this belief system and they transition, right? They, they exit oh, that, nice. that belief system. And uh, I've noticed this a lot, particularly with people who are coming out of new age communities, because there is a sense in which you come to the realization that, hey, what I was believing or what I've embraced for all this time wasn't true. And so there's almost a trauma in transitioning out of that because you come out of that with this fear of, I never want to get duped again. Mm. You know, so it's a betrayal. A, in, yeah, it's a betrayal. It's That's a right. Betrayal. And you feel like you betrayed yourself because you're the one who who bought into the stuff. Well, not everyone, but some people, right? You like I'm the one who embraced this and believed it. And one of the things I noticed with a lot of people that I've worked with who've come out of new age is there's almost this, there's almost this 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 driving force to just study all the time and watch every YouTube video they can get their hands on. And they usually end up going down some pretty like endless rabbit holes of conspiracy theories and just really toxic mm -hmm. stuff. But all of that is really rooted in the sense that I never want to get tricked again. No one's ever going to do this to me again. Mm -hmm. So there's that sense of like really big walls and self-protection. And mm -hmm. there's almost yeah. a trauma, you know, just in transitioning out and moving into, even though you're leaving an unhealthy space, you know, you're, mm -hmm. you're kind of, yeah, if that makes sense, you know, leaving yeah. it with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think trauma really is relational. And so when you go through trauma, religious trauma, you're having a rupture in a relationship. There's this sense of betrayal. And now there's parts of you that are trying to protect you from this happening again. Yeah. And that's huge, man, because you can leave the unhealthy 
religious experience or spiritual experience. And I think this is probably the main thing that really made me passionate about working with religious trauma is the recognition that it doesn't, it doesn't end because you left. You know, it doesn't end because you decided I'm not going to be a part of this community anymore or I'm not going to embrace these beliefs anymore. In fact, you can, you can just fully go atheist. It doesn't mean that the wounds that are already there have healed, you know. Maybe by changing your belief system and your community, you can prevent further harm. But the harm that yeah. was done won't be doesn't heal unless you actually process it in a in a healthy and safe way. So let's 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 take a, a moment. Unless there's something else you want to throw in there, I'm more than well, happy. I to, wanted to know. add in. There's a popular psycho, psychiatrist named Frank Anderson who actually talks about a range of responses to trauma, and he shares how we often either repeat it we will repress it mm. or we will learn from it and we will grow beyond it. Mm. They're the common responses to trauma. And so can you say those again? So you're, you're either going to repeat it, repeat it. So that like, just yes. repeat the cycles that yeah, repeat the cycles. Yep, you, yep. you see that even in family dynamics, you know, intergenerational trauma, uh, you will either repress it. So mm. <laughs> it didn't happen. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm over it. It doesn't matter anymore. It was a long time ago. Mm. Let's just ignore it. Move on. Um, or even other people might influence you to repress it in the church. Just read a Bible verse, you know, mm. just pray about it. Do a Bible study. Get up at 4 a.m. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anything you can to oh, shove it down and not deal with it. Yeah. 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 That's a very common one that you see. And then you can learn from it. So obviously that is a journey that you go on, you know, with hopefully a therapist who can go on that journey with you. And I think it's important as well. One thing that I would like to emphasize when it comes to learning from um, or healing from, I like to say, trauma is the, with a therapist is it's not that they have all the answers and they're the, like this guru, right? What they're giving you is a new relational experience because trauma happens in relationship with That's an right. other, right? We are all interconnected. We're all related to each mm. other. Everything is in relation. And so when you see a therapist, what you're giving yourself is a new relation, a new opportunity to experience a healthy relationship, a healthy right. way of being, a healthy way to express yourself, a healthy way to question, a healthy way to process without somebody who's going to impose their beliefs, their ideas, their, their, their views, their biases, their own trauma, mm. you know, their own histories, their own experiences onto you. And so I think it's important that we do have, we can share our stories with people who aren't therapists, of course, and we need those safe spaces with our communities, but sometimes it's not always possible, you That's know? Right. And so I think it's really important that we recognize that seeing a therapist is not harmful to our growth. It's not harmful to our spirituality. You know, it helps mm. our spirituality. It helps us to actually experience a relationship that is sacred, that is a relationship that is how it is supposed to be. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, so I just encourage people to really like consider that, that journey because it can give you a completely different experience to what 
you know, sometimes our, like our, there's people in our lives, like I have a best friend and I share with her many things, but there's always a part that I feel like, you know, this would best be shared with maybe someone who doesn't know me. There's, there is something powerful about like sitting down with a stranger, but not just sitting down with a stranger, but like you said, someone who is there to hold space for you. Yeah, that's the important part is having somebody who can hold that space for you. And that's really hard to find in our noisy world, you know. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I really encourage that if, if people can access that for sure. And I also recognize that it's not always accessible for a lot of people. So I'm hoping that we can help in that area in the future with future episodes and yeah, um, workshops and, you know, community groups that we can create. Absolutely. And before we get into the seven signs that you might be living with religious trauma, I promise you we're getting there. <laughs> but before, before I fully jump into it, I just wanted to mention one more thing. And I think this is important to mention it because I heard this a lot in, in high control sort of environments, you know, religious environments growing up. And it's the, what's the, the horror story is, is that the right word? Or, you know, the, the scary therapist story, oh, so-and-so went to a therapist and the therapist tried to convince them that God wasn't real and that they shouldn't even believe in Jesus and all this stuff. And, and I have to say, if there was ever a time when a therapist, you know, therapist would do that sort of thing, it, mm if there was ever a time where that was where that was true that's a time that has long passed therapists are specifically trained not to do that right they're not there to tell you what to believe they're not there to change your belief systems of course if you see someone and even myself you know as a religious trauma coach yourself as a as a therapist who works with couples with spirituality you know, we're not going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, it's okay that you go to a church that says it's okay for, you know, for your husband to hit you. Like, of course, we're going to challenge that, you know, but this notion that a therapist is going to tell you, you should no longer believe in God. If a therapist today is doing that, and it was discovered by their, you know, the people who sort of govern those things, they'd be in a lot of trouble. It's just not a thing, you know, and and if it if it does still happen today, it would be such a rare, weird thing. And you just bounce, like don't go back to that person and go see someone else, right? But this notion that therapy is dangerous and they're gonna deconvert you and you know all this nonsense, it's all fear tactics. Again, a lot of high control religious communities they thrive off of fear tactics because if they can keep you afraid, then they can keep you under their control. And it's mm -hmm. important to liberate yourself from that. So don't be afraid to reach out to a good therapist and and see it see someone who, who can really walk you through these things that doesn't mean that every therapist is great you know like sometimes there's a little bit of a journey you know you're sort of searching for the one that sort of suits your needs the best and that's okay as well so anyways just want to throw that in there before we dive into the seven signs <laughs> you might be living with religious trauma you ready to do this yeah let's go okay. let's do it okay so these aren't exhaustive there's a lot of signs that you might be living with religious trauma but here is the first one and these are not in any particular order of importance either. It's just the way they're written down. So here's the first one, sign that you may be living with religious trauma. And what I think what I want to do here, Candice, is just kind of sort of throw it out there and just get your thoughts. Like, what do you think about this particular you know, thing? We just banter back and forth. But here's number one. Number one sign that you may be living with religious trauma. You think very little of yourself and often struggle with deep shame. So you think very little of yourself and often struggle with deep shame. 
So this is, yeah, the number one, again, not in any particular order, just the number one in the list that we're looking at, that you may be living with religious trauma. How would you sort of relate to that as a therapist? So I would say shame is relational and it is something that occurs in a relationship that has been ruptured or disconnected. And what happens is the person then becomes disconnected who's experiencing this rupture and then they become isolated and they feel unworthy, mm. right? And I think people often think that shame happens because they haven't been kind of like, um, there was this author that I read, I can't remember the name, I'll have to find it. She was saying that shame strikes not because of a lack of admiration or acknowledgement, it strikes because our primary needs weren't met. And so there is a need for connection with another person, what she also refers to as emotional joining. Uh, and I think when people don't have that connection, that emotional joining, they experience a sense of I'm not worthy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, and that, and that can happen. That can happen way before you're even old enough to understand what your church is oh. teaching. That can happen in utero. A lot of these experiences can happen before we can even cognitively explain what we're That's experiencing. Right. That's you know? right, yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of this stuff is pre-verbal. So if you've experienced, maybe maybe none of that is the case for you. Maybe everything was fine in utero, mm. which is great. But you still have had these relational ruptures, you know, on your journey in life. Yeah. And so yeah. that's where that sense of shame comes from like I'm not worthy of mm. I'm not worthy of this relationship I'm not worthy of this healthy connection and that that's I think that's really important let me let me poke on that a little bit because in my work with you know as a religious trauma coach and and I've, I've done this you know for for a number of years now is one of the things I've identified quite often in people who are recovering from religious trauma is that there's there's a sense in which it's like you said it's really fundamentally a lack of connection. And with every person that I've worked with who is recovering from religious trauma, and this is true of my own story, a lack of connection was at the very foundation of, of the whole experience. So I'll give you an example, right? So one of the things that I often work with, with people who are recovering from religious trauma, we get to talking about shame, is this idea that, you know, shame is fundamentally an issue of identity. Uh, and it's very different from guilt, you know? So the way I'll often describe it is that guilt is like, hey, what I did was wrong. That's mm -hmm. that's guilt. And there's nothing, you know, this that can be very healthy. Oh, what I did was wrong. Shame says who I am is wrong, right? And so I'll, in a lot of high control sort of religious communities, there's a lot of messaging and theology that that sort of, you know, contributes to that. But it seems to me that the number one contributor is that you pick up on the fact that you are wrong way before you're even capable of articulating that. I think a lot of it has to do with, again, like you said, lack of connection. And unfortunately, I don't mind saying this because I think it needs to be said, like that's the reason why we're doing this podcast. Unfortunately, in a lot of fundamentalist, high control religions, there is a lack of connection because people cannot be themselves. People mm -hmm. cannot express themselves authentically. There's a script that everyone has to adhere to and that everyone has to match. And if you don't match that script, you get judged. And mm -hmm. I had a lady call me one time and she was saying, oh, I really struggle with fitting in at church. You know, I was, I was working at a 
quite a fundamentalist church at this time in this lady college. She said, I'm really struggling to fit in there. What do you think I should do? And and this is what I said to her, and I stand by this to this day, that in 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 most of these types of churches, there's a script. Mm-hmm. And if you match the script, you're in. And if you don't match the script, you're out. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that I observed as a pastor for many years, and not only as a pastor, but I grew up in a church like this, right? The thing that I observed is that nobody matches the script. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that the people who are on the in are the people who get really good at pretending to match the script. And the people who are on the out are the people who just don't have the temperament to even try to pretend that they match the script. And so all of those people who pretend to match the script are living disingenuous, incongruent lives. And and this is what it takes to to match the, the very narrow script that they've created. And then what happens is if these people have kids, they got to keep that facade up, you know, Mm -hmm. and they have to keep it up with their families, right? Their kids become sort of like a trophy of how good they are. So they have to keep this facade going. And it's, you see, you hear about it all the time, you know, and it's even happened. It's even happened with us, right? Like you're on your way to church and you're yelling at the kids and, you know, you're having this, it's just been a terrible morning and this just all this drama and all this tension and you pull up to the church and jump out the car and all of a sudden everybody's smiling. You know, and you're walking to the building like everything's great, you know, and this is the environment where if a kid is being raised in an environment like this, they know before they're even old enough to articulate it, they get the sense that they are wrong. They can't and be who they are. That's right. That's right. They can't be who they are. And so by the time you're old enough to actually process abstract theology and you hear someone preaching, you know, perfectionistic or legalistic theology emotionally, you're already primed to soak that stuff up, even though it hurts you more, right? And it goes beyond that. It goes into, I can't be who I am even in front of God. So I think the the experiences, these types of experiences, we internalize and we create and I like kind of a, some form of false identity out of that to fit in. Because if we don't do that, then how we feel like we feel vulnerable to annihilation. Mm. The whole, your whole person can be annihilated if you don't put this mask on. Yeah. And that's how you live. That's how you live your life. Yeah. And that's how you show up at church. Mm. And so you have this, you live with this sense of a threat constantly yeah. to your real self. Mm. And so you can't be yourself when you're connecting with other people. You can't be yourself when you're connecting with God. Um, and you just hide yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You just hide. Absolutely. I think. You know? And, you, and be, shame be, does oh, that. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. Shame, shame does that. Shame makes you feel like you are sinking into the ground, that you're disappearing, that you're blank. And, you know, you might describe it as... Uh, just yeah you're just exhausted and that's that shame that's what that shame is and the shame shame is often an unconscious experience we don't see it as shame all these feelings and other people don't either they see it as there's some sort of psychological problem with this person but what they're really experiencing is shame because they couldn't be they couldn't be who they are in a relationship or that who what someone has done to them they have internalized this reminds me of of something that Brene Brown said when she was talking about the difference between fitting in and belonging 
and I don't remember exactly how she articulated it, but it was something along the lines that, you know, fitting in is about twisting yourself like a pretzel in order mm-hmm. to be accepted by the group, you know? Right. So that the group will have a certain degree, a certain script, mm-hmm. and you got to match that script. So you twist yourself like a pretzel to match the script, even though it's not really you. Belonging is different. Belonging is about being able to show up exactly as you are right. with all of your fears, with all of your scars, and to be loved and accepted in that in that state of just pure ontological authentic you-ness you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that that's belonging and you're mm-hmm. right man i think you know we could probably talk about this one for hours and i'll share a little something after this to that effect anyways but um but i will say i think that a lot of the reason why in high control sort of fundamentalist religious communities there's there's this you know, you think very little of yourself and you struggle with, struggle with deep shame. I think a part of it is the messaging. There's that whole like, you know, self-esteem is bad and we are worms and, you know, we are disgusting sinners. And, you know, there is that, but I think it's deeper yeah. than that. You know, it's deeper than that. It's the fact that in these communities, you do not belong. Yeah. You can, can fit in by pretending to match their script and twisting yourself into someone that you aren't, but you never really belong. Yeah. This reminds me a... so much, sorry, this, this reminds me so much of adolescence, you know, when teenagers trying to understand who they are and discover, uh, you know, their place in the world and develop their identity. Mm. It feels a lot like that, you know, like going to church is being around a bunch of people that are trying to figure out who they are, um, but not fully being able to. I'm not saying every church is like this, by the way, but... I actually wrote something that this kind of reminds me of. It's about adolescence, but it does remind me of people who in church and feeling shame and feeling that they can't be themselves. If the adolescent is not provided with an environment of safety, now I want you to think about the church mm. member or you know whatever movement or religious belief you belong to. If they're not provided with an environment of safety, autonomy, and trust as they find their place in the world, they might adopt another self, which you see, right? You see Mm -hmm. that happen in church. Um, A false self. And they will try to be like someone they are not so they can feel some sense of identity. This isn't to be rebellious. This is to prevent feeling annihilated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. And I think we, a lot of people who can't be themselves in these spiritual spaces will often adopt a false self so that they prevent that feeling of annihilation. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, man. That's deep. Look guys, I just want to point something out here because we've got to move on. We got six other signs and if we take this much time with all of them, this will be a five hour episode. So I just want to point something out for you guys who are listening in these podcast episodes, we're going to be introducing a lot of these topics, but pretty soon, if you keep, you know, checking out our website, hungerpodcast.com and and subscribe to the list as well. If you do that, if you do that quiz, you'll automatically be in our list because we'll send updates. And what we'll do with these updates is one of the things, one of the updates that we're going to be sending is we're actually going to start releasing workshops and group sessions as well. So live group section, sessions and workshops. And those will be available on the website pretty soon. So just make sure you are on the mailing list so that you don't miss out when those come out. You'll be the first to know when those come out because we can we can do like, we'll do entire workshops that 
really go deep into this a lot deeper than we can do in the podcast. You know, obviously we're looking at seven signs here, but we could do a whole workshop just on this one here and then actually look at some practical ways in which we can heal and begin to move forward when it comes to shame. So just, just, just throwing that out there. So as we move into the next sign, you don't feel like, oh, I need more, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's a lot more coming. The podcast is just one dimension of, of this project. But I would say just in closing with this one that absolutely love that quote, absolutely love it. And it reminds me of my own self growing up in these churches and even working as, as a pastor in these churches, you often adopt, I don't remember who it was that said it, I was reading an author, it might've been Abraham Joshua Heschel or someone else, I can't remember who, but it was talking about how in these communities, we often adopt, it was called a God voice, you know? So like, I'm from, I'm from Jersey, I'm a Jersey boy. I've always been a Jersey boy. I was born and raised in, in Newark, New Jersey, sort of urban culture, right? And we have a very, I mean, I don't really talk like that anymore because I, you know, I've been away from there for like 10 years, but you know, it's sort of like urban street, street talk, you know, like that's how we, that's what we talk all the time. And then you get to church and you're like, my brothers and sisters, how are, you know what I mean? It's just like, you hear that. And it's like, nobody talks like that, dude, mm. you know, and you hear and I experienced experience that with you. Yeah, you did. You did experience this. Yeah. Like well, I get up on stage. Yeah. yeah. Like I get up on stage to preach and all of a sudden I have a different voice. Yes. And it's just like this character that you've, this avatar that you've created that you tap into when it's time to be holy. Mm -hmm. Because the underlying assumption, the unconscious assumption is that who I am on a regular, you know, when I'm out with my friends, that person, that that's not, that's not acceptable to God. Mm -hmm. And so I mm -hmm. have to create this avatar. Here's the interesting thing. And we're going to talk about this a whole lot more in a future episode, because we've got to move on now. The avatars are always Eurocentric, always. They're always old school, Anglo, Eurocentric, white culture, right? Mm -hmm the way you talk, the language that you use, you hear preachers talking like they're from the 1800s or 1900s America, you know, and it's like, that's supposed to be holier mm -hmm. than, than me saying, what's up guys? Yeah, I'm from the streets, you know, like <laughs> it's supposed mm -hmm. to be holier to say brothers and, you know, like, but nobody talks like that anymore, you know, but, but we do it because it's the avatar. It's the, it's, that's actually, in my estimation, that is a shame-based sort of avatar that we create based on the idea that, who I am on the real, that person isn't like, that's not worthy of God. So I've got to edit myself. And the standard for self-editing is, is always Eurocentric. And again, we'll dig into that in the future. But I always found that like, you know, even back then I, I found it odd, but as I got a little bit older, a little bit wiser, I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here, man? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's something phony about this. But anyways, we, we got to move on. I'm going to read the second one. And we'll try to get through these next, these next six a little bit faster. Like I said, we'll be making workshops on, on some of these in more detail. And if there's any particular topic, you guys listening, you're like, I really, really want you guys to dig into this more. Please do, because we'll do a Q&A at the end of this season. And we'd love to hear your questions. All right, here's number two sign that you may be living with religious trauma. Whenever you talk about God, you get anxious and tense. Whenever you talk about God, you get anxious and tense. And let me expand on that a little bit. The anxiety and tension may not, may not necessarily feel negative to you. So let me give you an example. I worked at a church one time where there was a young man who anytime we had a Bible study, whenever it was his turn and he would like share his thoughts or opinions, he was always really aggressive. It's like, you guys have to see it this way. And if anyone in the group said something that he didn't agree with, 
then forget it. It was a fight for the rest of the, for the hour, you know? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, hey, we can look at this person as someone who's religiously arrogant. Um, but I'm of the belief, actually, that we don't usually even engage in that type of behavior, that type of, you know, like narcissism. It's like one of the signs, you know, like sort of responses of trauma. There's fight, there's flight, there's fawn. And what's the other one? There's freeze. Mm-hmm. And, and fight is, that, is a trauma response. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the, it's the, I have to fight. And what I discovered, and I did some self reflection on this many years ago, cause I was never that type of person temperamentally. Like I would just get into a big fight with someone, but I would get anxious and tense when someone says something I didn't agree with it. Be like, Oh, wait, you know, like I could feel like the blood boiling. Like I was getting ready to fight, but I just wouldn't do it. Cause I'm just that kind of person. But, um, but I sat back one day and I just sort of started searching my heart and be like, why do I always get this way when someone says this? And I realized that it had nothing to do with me being secure in my beliefs it was all about how insecure i was that's why i would get and i think that when people talk about god they get anxious and tense maybe you get anxious and tense when you visit your religious family you're like oh i hate these conversations that's definitely a sign of religious trauma but it's equally Mm -hmm. a sign of religious trauma you get anxious and tense whenever god comes up in a bible study in a church setting or anywhere and you feel the need to prove your belief system and you have to argue with everyone that doesn't come from a place of secure attachment to your faith or to or to god that comes from a place of insecurity so anyways talked enough what do you think might like totally wrong there or am okay. I, no, I think yeah i think like somebody in that environment where the example you shared earlier where they're ready to kind of like fight that's very typical of sympathetic activation and so yeah it makes a lot of sense everything kind of speeds up in that sympathetic state or you know your blood pressure increases your heart rate you feel like you're in danger yeah and your body can't tell the difference you're protecting yourself from danger and so the opposite of that is parasympathetic where you see you might see people shut down you know, when talking about God, they completely shut off. They show a lot of disinterest. Everything is slower. There's, there can be anger. There's grief, sadness, uh, and they can dissociate and even collapse. You'll see them kind of like lean into themselves, you know, like they're tucking themselves into their stomach almost. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, there's different responses, and I think it's really important to understand why that happens. So you can be triggered by these conversations, and there's some points later on in the signs that we're about to talk about, but I think it all kind of ties in with this, that when you experience a trauma, just say something traumatic um, or a distressing event, Mm. something overwhelming, it doesn't impact your thinking brain first okay. uh, it impacts the base of your brain which is called your brain stem mm-hmm. and so it's a lot to explain on a podcast so yeah yeah we won't well, go into can, all can the I, details can I tell you something this is actually what you just said is so true and this is one of the reasons why whenever i wa- work with people who are processing religious trauma i tell them the solution to religious trauma isn't a bible study mm-hmm now, I'm not saying that truth content properly articulated in a healing way doesn't have an effect because it certainly does. You know, Jesus said, mm-hmm. you'll know the truth. It'll set you free. There's certainly a truth to that. Like in my own experience, I had to deconstruct and decolonize theology and arrive at a healthier perspective 
as part of my healing journey, 100%. However, mm -hmm. that's not the whole story because again, like a lot of trauma is actually trapped in your body. It's trapped in your nervous system. It's not cognitive. It's not verbal. And that's something that we'll talk about in a future episode, how like Western Christianity has become so cognitive and particularly within fundamentalist religions, it's all about right theology and right thinking and right ideas and right dogma. And it's like, okay, you certainly need a space where you heal sort of theological narratives and, and constructs, sure. Yeah. But it's, that's not all there is to it. And like you said, like when you go through trauma, that's not the first, the first part of your brain that's impacted isn't the thinking part, you know? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. if your solution to religious trauma is just another Bible study or another sermon, you're not going to get there. And, and I say this because like one of the things that I experienced a lot um, with a lot of people that I've met, even as a pastor, a lot of people who have a trauma of you know, in, in theology is called a lack of assurance, right? In the world of theology, it's called a lack of, this person doesn't have assurance of salvation, which basically mm -hmm. means they feel like they're never going to be good enough for God. And, right. you know, they just, you know, they're always feeling like they, they don't measure up and blah, blah, blah. So generally speaking, what we do in church is we always aim to address this with theology. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, let's, let's, let's preach sermons on the gospel. Let's do some Bible studies. Let's get more books out there on the good news of salvation. And people keep struggling with this stuff. And it's like, there's two things that you've mentioned that I think need to be brought up here. Number one, most of these fears are not cognitive information. You're not going to fix it just with a Bible study. It may play its role, but not the full story. And, and, and number two, and this goes back to something you said earlier, most of these fears stem from a lack of authentic connection. So mm -hmm. you could be preaching all the sermons you want. If your community of faith is not a place where people can connect authentically, you're yeah. unlikely to see the healing that, that actually needs to take place. The, the sad yeah. part about it is in fundamentalist communities, creating that authentic connection is impossible so long as the fundamentalism persists. Because the fundamentalism is, you know, kind of like the, the venom that keeps the, you know, it just keeps going, you know, it just, it keeps, keeps people in that state, which is a conversation for another time. But I just wanted to bring that up because I love that fact that you said that. And it's a good point to emphasize that, you know, certainly like if you're going through this, man, for sure. Like I actually, I even made a whole app, you know, hunger, which is part of, part of this project hunger, the, the app, which is like Bible studies and devotionals and, you know, audio and video for people who are decolonizing and deconstructing and healing from religious trauma. But I recognize that that app is only one dimension, man. It's just one dimension. It's just the cognitive side of things. There, yeah. there has to be more. And I think this is where therapy is important. This is where community is important. This is where practicing an embodied life is important. All things we'll talk about in more detail later on. Yeah. But yeah, thank you for, for mentioning that. I'm ready to go to number three, okay. if you are. Okay. So yeah. number three, you feel burned out on God the Bible, church, religion, like you just need a giant break from all mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's, that is, uh, it reminds me a lot of going back to the arousal states, you know, I would say parasympathetic state, um, the shutdown, the overwhelm, mm -hmm. yep. you know, kind of like turning inward. I need to get away. Yeah. It's, it's just another protective response. You know, you feel like you're in danger and it makes sense because you have been in situations or have experienced trauma that is making you feel unsafe, that is, hasn't been safe. So 
when I read that point, it's just what it reminds me of, that parasympathetic arousal. Like I'm just shutting down now <laughs> yeah. because this is how I can keep myself safe. Definitely. I will say this as a pastor and as a religious trauma coach, whenever someone experiences burnout, one of the things that we obviously recommend is they need to, they need to pause and recover, right? You need to pause and recover. You can't keep doing the same thing while trying to recover from burnout. And burnout's a real thing. You can have religious burnout, right? You can have God burnout for sure, especially if it's been like a really negative, toxic experience. And I think it's important just to point out that it's okay if you need a break, you know, like, and I say that because I know in a lot of religious communities, you know, they'll be like, oh, you can't stop. No, you have to keep doing this and you have to keep coming to church and blah, blah, blah. Look, if you if you need if you just need somebody in your life to tell you it's OK to just completely pause and take a break and unplug and just spend some time alone with God. And and it may not even be that you're sitting there doing Bible studies or listening to sermons. You maybe you pause on all of that. Right. And you just take some time, whatever time you need just to recenter and recover. Like that is literally what Jesus invites. He's like, come to me, all you who are burdened and, and burnt out on religion, right? I'll give you rest. I'll show you a new way of walking, a new way of living, a new way of relating to God. And that's so hard to do when you're in toxic religious communities. And so I would say, man, if you're listening to this and you're feeling like I really need a big giant break, take the break, dude. Like seriously, take the break, take as long as you need. You know, it could be six months. It could be a year. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, as part of that break, it could involve, again, you know, doing some proper therapy, you know, and just going out and seeing the world a little bit and having fun, you know, like just just have your break, please, you know. <laughs> and I feel like it's important to say that because sometimes people feel like the messaging is so like heavy in the opposite direction that sometimes people just need to hear, like, you know what, it's okay. I, I can. I can, I can pause and unplug and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you need it, you know, you need it. You should do it for your well-being. I think it's very important to also recognize when it's becoming maladaptive because it is important to be able to keep yourself safe. So it is an adaptive response. There's nothing wrong with that, hmm. but it is maladaptive if it keeps happening or you Definitely. can't function in life. Yeah. So I think there is a difference as well between I'm taking time for myself and I'm hiding, I'm running away because I can't cope. Yeah. And I Absolutely. think it's very important to have support, have the right people around you if you're in that place. You know? right. All right. Number four. <laughs> <laughs> number four. It's actually very similar to number one. So I don't think we have to say too much about this one, but number four yeah. sign that you may be struggling with religious trauma, you struggle with feeling inadequate yeah. as a human being. What yeah. Be I was going to say, I think that's very similar to the first one that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely Sorry. very similar. Yeah. I'm happy to go on to the next one. Number five, you feel really uneasy and panicky when you attend mm -hmm. a church. All and right. this, this is in the context of someone who has experienced religious trauma. Mm -hmm. So I would say, as I was mentioning earlier with the brain, when you experience trauma, it impacts the lower brain, right? I, I like how Bruce Perry, psychiatrist, describes the brain and he talks about it like a four-layered cake and so he has the base of the brain which is the regulatory system 
And when you go through a trauma, that's the first part of the brain that's impacted. So the brain stem, the bottom part of the brain, is impacted first, not the thinking brain. Uh, the base of the brain, it doesn't think at all. Mm. And it doesn't even tell time. Whereas the thinking part of the brain, the cortex, the top part of the brain, that can obviously think um, and it can tell time. Yeah. So when you go through a trauma and your regulatory system, the base of your brain is activated, the top part of your brain completely goes offline, right? Mm. And you're trying to stay safe. And all this sensory input goes to the base of the brain first, and eventually it does go to the cortex, but not straight away, right? Mm. And so this sensory information also forms really important memory. And we organize our understanding of the world from this memory. So when you now go to church and you've had a trauma, say uh, maybe it happened in church or something reminds you of church, whatever it may be, however it occurred, this sensory memory is activated. And so that's why when you go into church or wherever it is that you're going and you're feeling panicky and uneasy all of a sudden, the thinking part um, of your, sorry, the brainstem, because it can't tell time, it doesn't realize that this information that it's receiving is not in like the current. future yeah it's not yeah. it's not in the future it's you know it can't tell the time it can't tell that what happened to you happened say five years ago or ten years ago yeah. right and so because it doesn't know that we instantly go into that you know we start trying to keep ourselves safe again yeah it's, um, it's almost like as far as that part of your brain is concerned yes you are back the moment or the season where that initial trauma took place yeah, it, initially it, it doesn't it yeah feels, it doesn't think oh yeah. that was five years ago like it doesn't it can't actually process time that way yeah so it, it's just a signal that comes into the brainstem right mm. and eventually it does end up moving up to the cortex the thinking brain and then you can be like oh wait you know i'm yeah. not in that time that makes a lot of sense i'll give you an example so when i was growing up in jersey um one of the things that i had to deal with as a kid growing up in, in newark new jersey is people get jumped a lot. There's a lot of gangs. There's a lot of crime in Newark, you know, just not exactly the safest place. And yeah. so, you know, I went to, I went to where I went to high school and where I went to the gym and it was always like in the downtown areas. And sometimes I'd be coming home, you know, in the winter, it's like five o'clock in the evening, it's already pitch black. And there were a few times where I got almost got assaulted. There were a few times where I was mugged. There was one time where I almost got assaulted by 20 guys who were just looking for someone to beat up, right? That was kind of a, just a normal growing up there. Now, that was over 20 years ago. If I go out in the city at night today, even, even here where it's nowhere near as violent as it was there, if I go out in the city at night today, my body feels exactly like I'm back at that moment when those guys were going to beat me up, right? My yeah. body can't tell the difference. If I hear a sound behind me, like I'm jumpy when I'm in the city at night, you know, I'm looking mm -hmm. over my shoulder. I'm like ready to throw hands, you know, <laughs> Yeah. I'm just, I'm not, I love the city. I'm a city boy at heart, but like, especially the city at night, especially if I'm by myself, I'm just, I'm always really, really tense. And I'm not actively thinking that anything's going on, but yeah. my body is just, it's, it's like no time has trend. No last 20 years of nothing. Haven't 
they don't exist for, for my body when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's right back in that moment. And I'm just tense. Yeah. You know, I'm just waiting for someone, you know, to try and like come at me with a shank or something. You know? yeah. And so this is the part of religious trauma where I would say, mm-hmm. and I just want to clarify this as well, because, you know, I've said like, I'm a religious trauma coach and you're a therapist. What's the difference between that? This is the difference because as a religious trauma coach, I can do, you know, sort of pastoral counseling. I can look at forward movement. We can talk about like different, maybe doctrinal things that are stuck in your head that you need to work through. But when it comes to this area right here, where there's things trapped in your body and your cortex and your nervous system, that's where a therapist who goes backwards and works Mm -hmm. through all of that, that's where that really comes in. And it's extremely necessary. You know, it's extremely, as a coach, I can't do that. That's not my expertise. I'm not qualified to do that, but that's really something that you're very like focused on and passionate about. That's sort of your thing, you know, but anyways, yeah, the floor is yours again. My apologies. (laughs) Yeah, so basically I was just saying that this sensory input that comes in kind of activates, can activate the traumatic memory. And so the what we have to do in a healing space is to uh, work out how to help that stress response, you know, yeah. and the, the stress response system to become less activated. And so you work with body and you work with things like the window of tolerance and, and all sorts of things. But of course, it's also largely happening in in relationship, you know, in ther- yeah. the therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's that's why these things happen. You know, I I was remembering a story just earlier how because I grew up with a lot of not all not the whole time in my childhood, but there were certain seasons in my life, certain points in my life where it was very conservative. And I remember a few religious thought leaders that I would watch at the time and they scared me. They really scared me. And I remember it's been, I think it had been about 15 years since I'd seen one of them, um, their face. And I immediately felt nauseous as soon as I saw them. Even the mention of their name makes me nauseous, you know, because it was such difficult period of my life where um, that person's ideas and beliefs about God uh, I had internalized a lot and it really affected how I saw myself it affected my experience in church it affected um, my experience with other people with the world everything so yeah I had a very physical response 15 years later just to seeing his face and hearing his name you know so that's basically what I'm trying to get at is it's very, that's how, that's why that happens. You know, what I was sharing earlier um, yeah, and it's very absolutely. common. Yeah. By the way, apologies in case anyone, I don't know what the final recording is going to be like, but the neighbor's dog seems to be outside right now running around barking. So <laughs> hopefully it's not too loud in the background, <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And again, these are, these are the types of things because there's certain key things when it comes to religious trauma that are sort of like the foundational things that are necessary to explore in depth. And this is, this is one of those areas where we'll definitely be releasing some workshops and materials that go deeper in the future. So the next one, I think is also, there's probably, it's different, but in the same sense, I think we would probably sort of circle around some of the same information. It's like, this is number five or six. Let me see, six, seven. Yeah, this is number six. So you never feel like you belong anywhere, 
even in your own body. So mm-hmm. this is, it's slightly different to the first one, you know, I mean, not the first one, the one we just talked about. I think this one's more about like just feeling disembodied wherever you are. So can you tell us a little bit about the sort of brain-body connection, the, the sense of being disembodied? Because I think that's very, very, that's another one of those very foundational things. And Western Christianity, particular, particularly fundamentalist, high-control religion, it's very disembodied, very, very yeah. disembodied, very stoic and cognitive. And, and mm-hmm. so that certainly is something that needs to be worked through in the healing journey. Yeah, I think there's two parts to this point. So you don't belong anywhere is definitely um, a relational rupture. So as I'd mentioned earlier, not feeling that sense of belonging Mm -hmm. and just speaking from a religious uh, trauma context. um, I think the issue is our church is definitely the church and certain spiritual movements. Um, It's not relational and it's not embodied and it's highly rational and based on logic and facts and reason and I think it's really difficult to fit into those spaces if you can't be relational or experiential you can't have emotion you can't have feeling you can be a person right a full person yeah and I I noticed this a lot in a lot of the churches I worked in because even when people are like, for example, when people are worshiping, you know, they're singing, there's certainly a Eurocentric tradition of like very stoic model of worship. That's certainly a cultural thing. And I I don't, and I want to make this clear. I don't have anything against the European expression. I just, the only thing that I'm against is when people pretend like it's the only thing that God likes, you know, that, that cultural elitism is not, not cool. But if a person is, you know, like the sort of European expression, they tend to be disembodied, you know, like, what can you do? Like, that's every culture is different. But I will say that there is something very bizarre about seeing a room full of people who are supposed to be the recipients and custodians of the greatest story ever told and the greatest hope ever offered to humanity. And when they're singing their songs and worshiping this God, they just they just look so disembodied and so dead, right? And and like mm-hmm. there's no joy. It's stoic, it's monotonous, it's formal. And and I think all of this again is a symptom of being disembodied. And in a lot of these churches, there's a lot of airtime that's given to, oh, you shouldn't worship like this, and you know, raising your hands is evil and dancing, and you know, none of that stuff pleases God. And a lot of that stuff is rooted in racial theories that are that are racist. But that aside, because that's a whole other conversation on its own, I think you're really seeing is a room full of people who are so in their heads, they're complete, they're disembodied. They're not connected mm-hmm. to their bodies, right? right. And when you're, when you're disembodied, essentially you've, what you've done is you've separated the cognitive part of you from the somatic or the body part of you. You've, you've separated them. And it's the cognitive that's more important than the body. And that's just not Jewish idea. I say that because the Bible is a Jewish book. Like, let's not, let's not beat around the bush, you guys. You know, it's a Jewish book, right? It has a Jewish cosmology. And Hebraic cosmology, Jewish cosmology is deeply holistic, celebrates the connection between the mind and the body and the spirit, right? There's this holistic 
sort of balance between the three where they dance with each other, they harmonize, and that this is, and we, we participate in reality through the interplay of these three dimensions of what it means to be a human, you know, the mind, the body, and the spirit. And, mm -hmm. and so when people who are designed by God to be these holistic beings, when you see them not being that way, something caused that, right? There's a rupture somewhere that took them completely out of their bodies and just put them straight up in their, in their craniums and they just can't exit that space. And even for me, because I remember like growing up in these churches, as I got a little bit older and I thought to myself, I want to worship more freely, you know, like wanna, I want to be able to like raise my hands and, you know, and move when I worship God, even though that's sort of, a, you know, that might sound a little bit silly for someone like, oh, you know, raising your hands is not a big deal. But for me, it was a big deal because I was like hands in your pockets look straight forward, you know, like that's how I was raised. And, and I remember attending a church where everyone worshiped that way. Everyone around me was worshiping that way. So it's not like it was going to be weird if I did it. I still couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it because my brain and my body were so detached from each other mm -hmm. that it took a long time and like slowly, you know, like little, but, and today it, I still struggle with it on a bad day, right? Like if, if I'm in a worship environment and sometimes I feel like I flow really easily into body connection and other times i'm just like oh man i'm struggling with it today you know yeah. so yeah definitely a symptom of, of of trauma that that has separated caused that rupture as you said yeah i think you can go so far back you know you can go so far back to the early church where reason and logic were pushed more than the experiential the relational the mystical experience with God and we see it even in our societies a lot of the systems that are in place are focused heavily on rationality and facts and information starts even in the classroom where you're told to sit still and don't talk don't have expression don't move your body but you're already learning to become disembodied in those environments you know and then you take that to church you take it everywhere you go and then throw in trauma uh, from our parents, trauma from our families, trauma in our school environments, bullying, this, and then trauma in our church. It's just a very disembodied, uh, it's, it's very disembodied wherever you go. And so it's no surprise that people feel like they don't belong when they go to church. And then on top of that, having to go along with a script to fit in. That's right. So... It's really difficult to be who you are fully um, when you've had to put on a mask for so long, you mm. know, and especially when you enter an, into, an, into an environment that you know will only accept the mask and not who you really are. Yeah. So um, I think it's, it's a normal <laughs> uh, feeling to feel that sense of I don't belong here when you're constantly in environments that make you feel like you don't, you don't belong. But going to don't feel like you're even in your own body. I, apart from just feeling disembodied, it can also be dissociative. You feel like you're not in your body anymore. And that's, again, that is another way that we adapt and try to keep ourselves safe when we mm. don't feel safe. Yeah. So, yeah.
Yeah, because if like if you can exit your body, your mm-hmm. body being the prime phenomenon that is interacting yeah. with the environment, mm-hmm. if you can exit that, it's almost like you can put some distance between you and the environment mm-hmm. that's around you. You know, you can step into your like your brain is almost like your mind, your thoughts, your ideas, your imagination is almost like a fortress where you can go and hide. So you just detach. And yeah, this is definitely a, I think in very extreme scenarios of abuse, this is something mm-hmm. that we see as well, where people sort of detach from their body. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's and it's, sort of, it's a defense it. mechanism. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, it's a defense mechanism. You can actually see it. I've seen it with clients, like an arm be completely offline. It's mm. completely dissociated. But it's just a, it's a way that they're protecting themselves. All right. Well, here is the last sign that you may be living with religious trauma. It's a pretty simple one. Before I read this last one, I just want to encourage you guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast and and you want to hear a lot more and, and you find that this is actually really, really meaningful for you and your own healing journey, please, please share it. We're not on Spotify yet for the like and subscribe thing, but please share it. Share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with your communities. Uh, we really want this to be a resource that enables and empowers people to, to heal and to reclaim their lives, to reclaim their stories, to reclaim their spirituality in, in a way where you wake up in the morning and it's like, you don't, how, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you wake up with that expectancy and that enthusiasm that should come from having a spiritual connection as opposed to mm-hmm. the things that religious trauma leaves us with. And so you can just go to our website, hungerpodcast.com. There's, that's literally all it is, hungerpodcast.com. And as I said earlier, you can do our, our quiz. If you do that quiz, really, really helpful because it helps us know how to shape this content so that it meets your needs the best. So please do that quiz, the four types of religious trauma quiz. Identify which type of religious trauma you have in it. Again, it helps us because it helps us know this is what people are wrestling with the most. Let's create content around this instead of us just guessing, right? And be like, oh, we think this would help people. And then it's not what people actually need. So please do the quiz. And on the website as well, you can join our mailing list. You can get all the updates when workshops come out. And also all the links for Candice, for her website, her Instagram, my links as well. It's all there. It's all on the website. So please check out hungerpodcast.com and please share this. And as soon as we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and we can get you guys to like and subscribe, we will we will send that update. But this is the last one I want to mention. Number seven. Again, it's a pretty simple one. Your religious beliefs cause you a lot of distress. You struggle to lighten up and enjoy life. And uh, this, is, this is certainly one that I relate to a lot because when I was particularly at, at the pinnacle of my suffering, if I can put it that way, with religious trauma, here's the thing. I didn't know I had religious trauma. I didn't even mm-hmm. know what it was, right? I didn't know that it was a thing. And so like I was walking around you know, like I was praying for three hours a day and reading my Bible, you know, repeatedly. And whenever I wasn't doing one of those things, I had my MP3 player on and I was just listening to sermon after sermon after sermon, thinking that these things were going to fix the problem because I didn't realize where the pain was coming from. You know, was it what it was rooted in? And for me, it was rooted in, particularly, it was rooted in perfectionistic theology, right? It was this idea that I have to I have to be morally perfect. This is what God expects of me, you know? And so at that time, 
I just thought I just need to read my Bible more. I just need to pray more. And if, if I, if someone had actually asked me, Marcus, are your religious beliefs causing you distress? Are you, do you struggle to lighten up and enjoy life? I would have sat back and be like, huh? I mean, you know, you always have your religious ideologue who never wants to be honest about anything, but there's people who, who are really stuck in this space who are sincere. And I know I would have been like, I think you're right. And I'll tell you why I believe that because what really started shifting things for me, I mean, going to therapy was massive. That was huge. Early thing that really started shifting things for me was I noticed that people in my faith community who had the belief system that I had, right? The very fundamentalist, rigid belief system. I noticed that we were always angry mm. and that people, whether it was pastors or speakers or authors who didn't share our fundamentalist assumptions, they were always so lighthearted and full of joy. And and I remember thinking, because these were the preachers that in my circle, we would warn each other about, oh, no, stay away from this guy. He's bad news. You know, he's super liberal. Like, don't listen to that. You know, like we would have these conversations. And, and the thing is, one day I was sitting back and I was like, you know, what's really weird? Those, those guys that we're always warning people about, they're just lighthearted and they're full of joy. And it's not that, it's not that they were you know, what's the word I'm looking It's not that they were shallow and just, you know, because anybody can be lighthearted with no stresses in life if they don't care about anything. It wasn't like that, right? They had real deep commitment and real deep spirituality and made a lot of sacrifices in their life, what they believed in for what they loved. And, and they were really committed, but it was, it was a lightheartedness that was, that just oozed. Like everywhere they went, a little bit of sunshine came with them, that type of thing, you know? And I noticed that. And then the people around me, the, the fundamentalist crowd that I was in, it's like, we're always angry, you know? Mm. And, and that's where the thing started to shift for me because I just looked at these other people and I was like, I don't know what to say, but I just, I just, I want what they have, man. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to yeah. spend my whole life angry and anxious and always fighting and there's a devil under every bush. And you know what I mean? My religious beliefs made it impossible for me to lighten up and enjoy life. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I started to sort of become aware of that, become self-aware of that, you know? And, and this was something that really hit me during those times as well, because I remember even thinking like, if Jesus was like me and my fundamentalist friends, I don't think kids would have liked him as much as they did because the kids loved Jesus, right? Like they would run up to Jesus. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jesus oozed the same lighthearted joy that these other guys over there are oozing. You know. <laughs> so anyways, I'm talking a lot here, but yeah, your religious beliefs cause you a lot of distress. You struggle to lighten up and enjoy life. Number seven sign that you may be living with religious trauma would love your thoughts mm. on that and this is the last one we're going to wrap up after this um but yeah would yeah. love would love any thoughts you have on that well i think i'd like to pretty much point out what you were saying how you noticed a difference you know in relationship and connection mm. and i think that's that's a really important thing to focus on because obviously before i've talked about you know, different beliefs causing distress and things like that, how they can activate different regulatory responses within us. But I think it's really powerful that you were able to um, see a different group of people and how they live and how they experience uh, God and each other 
And I think that's that's the thing that is healing. You know, it's a right relationship, a new relationship, a healthy relationship. And one of my favorite sayings by Frank Anderson is trauma blocks love. Love heals trauma. Mm. And I think what you experienced there was that first that starting point, the beginning of that healing, you know, and which is what's going to help you to no longer be distressed in the, with these certain beliefs and in these certain environments, because you're now in a healthy relational experience. You're seeing the possibility that things can be different. Things can be better, you know? And I think that's, that's the beautiful thing about removing when you, when you can remove yourself, if you can, not everybody can, but if you can remove yourself from these environments that aren't healthy, you can see that there's possibility of healing and hope, you know, of change. Absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, I think like what you were sharing before that, that's what that reminds me of. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I love Um, it, man. I love it. Well, guys, this was, this was the last one that we're going to look at for this episode. And like I said before, head over to hungerpodcast.com to, to, you know, subscribe and all the things, all the things. It's all there. I'm sure you've visited a website before and you can get there and know how to navigate your way around and, and find all the things. There's going to be a lot more coming and we are going to be posting a new episode on this podcast every Monday. So every Monday you can expect to have a new episode on Hunger, the podcast, and where we're going to continue to explore religious trauma next week we're going to our second episode we're going to bust the top five spiritual trauma myths so there's five myths about spiritual trauma religious trauma and we're going to bust those top five myths as we continue to explore what a healing journey can look like for for each of us uh, in our lives in our spiritual lives in our in our existential lives and all the different dimensions that make us us. So thank you. Thank you for hanging out with us for this last, I don't know, what was this like two hours? (laughs) Thank you for hanging out with us, you guys. (laughs) And uh, we will see you next week. Until then, I want to wish you a happy new year because Candace and I are recording this on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Yes, best way to bring in the new year. Best way, man. Best way. Happy new year, guys. (laughs) We'll see you next Monday.